Welcome to the Retail Pulse podcast with your host, Suzanne Sears. Based in Toronto, Suzanne is an executive retail recruiting expert who owns three staffing companies. Since 2011, she and her team have successfully placed over 1,000 people into their next retail roles. Suzanne combines her business and retail expertise to provide retail staffing solutions that work. Tune in to the Retail Pulse podcast for Suzanne's discussions about retail staffing challenges and what's happening in the retail industry. Hello, I'm Suzanne Sears. I'm your host for the Retail Pulse podcast. And today our special guest is Dr. Deborah. Uh, Deborah is an expert in um, human resources, human organizational, behavioral change management. We first met oh, maybe five or ten years ago uh, when Deborah was working with Mandrake, which, as you know, is a very well-known, well-esteemed executive search firm. And uh, we started to share ideas. Uh, I basically, she was my... Um, my muse, if you will. I wanted to aspire to do re- recruiting as, as well as she does. But let her tell you all about herself. What do you actually do, Dr. Deb? Well, you know, I do pretty well anything related to talent. So these days, a lot of the work that I'm doing is around organizational development, um, leadership development. I've just finished a big program for one of the northern governments. Uh, developing, you know, multi-level leadership training, still doing executive search and doing a lot of executive coaching. That's a key part, a segment nowadays. Um, it, executives are basically retiring, retiring out of the game. So it becomes very difficult to uh, to find new ones, I'm sure. Are you finding that? Yeah, the market, you know, the market is going in, seems to be in two directions. So I run three executives in transition groups. I've seen that. Yeah, yes. so those are senior executives. In some ways, they're having as tough a time as uh, some of the middle and younger people. And, um, uh, you know, companies, especially around talent at the mid-level, mm-hmm. Entry to mid-level, it's really tough these days. I'm sure you're seeing the same thing. Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, I get requests all the time from post-age 50 people looking to transition, looking to do consulting, and, you know, it, it's it's a struggle. They they haven't really been in this position for 20, 30 years, right. so it's all brand new to them to be doing this. Um, well, let's just jump right in and, and talk about HR in general. Both of us work with HR executives um, to, you know, complete our work. What do you think has changed the most over the last 10 years about priorities? And what what does HR consider important now that you might not have ever even had to consider 10 years ago? You know, I think... Uh, and, and I think this is a lot post-pandemic. So the biggest change I've seen, as you have, I know, is around issues on location of work. Right. So one of the biggest sticking points um, that, that we find when we're searching for people is how many days in the office? How much flexibility are you going to give me? And so flexibility isn't always about can I work from home, but it's in the course of the day when I'm in the office, 
how much flex about start time? How much flex about when can I leave? How many days a week can I be from home? Can I be accommodated for the child care or elder care needs that I have? And then there's flexibility in terms of style of work, right? So uh, the culture piece is, is so important now. I mean, it always was important, but it's just, it's a bit different. Oh, absolutely. I find, too, commuting is, is a buzzkiller. You know, effectively, if you already had a job where you're used to commuting an hour to work every day, you're probably going to stay with that job. But in selling a new position to, uh, especially in the retail industry, all levels, if you have to travel more than 30 minutes, most people tell you no right out of the gate, uh, unless you've got significant work from home accessibilities. But, you know, in retail, a lot of the times... That's, that's not the case. You really have to show up. So um, it, it is a deal killer in many cases. You know, I find too now that we have a lot of international new Canadians. They, they tend to be willing to travel anywhere you want to send them. But, um, you know, we, we still find some resistance and skepticism from hiring managers about this Canadian experience thing. Well, you know, somewhere around 35% of our population now is new Canadians, and a lot of them are executives or at least senior managers. Are you running into the same thing? I'm so glad you brought up the issue of new Canadians. It is the one thing that I try to speak to my clients about and I try to advocate for mm -hmm. because, you know, we have some amazing, amazing immigrant talent that's coming in. Some of these people have worked for, you know, very big global right. firms. And this Canadian experience piece is a mystery to me as a recruiter. I've been recruiting a long time as you have. Mm -hmm. And with a global focus and a, a global talent market, there's a level of sophistication that's out there that is not exclusive to North America or to the West. So a lot of these immigrants have worked for global companies, just right. so happen to be in other countries. And it's very difficult as a recruiter to, play, to put a new immigrant forward in a search. You know, I, I find too that it's, it's not so much the hiring managers who have any particular issues. If you can demonstrate capacity, quite often they'll consider this. But human resources got stuck into this... Um, this mold of 2000s of fit and fit came to be identical. So whoever had that role before, we want an identical person and we're going to hire all identical people because when we do that, we have fewer problems and they can't quite see the new Canadians as fitting in the same way. But yet when they actually end up hiring them, there, there is no issue. <laughs> you know, um, a lot of the roles now today, too, require an international flexibility. So I have a client right now that's hiring management because they're opening a new, uh, a new outlet, a new de uh, depot in Mexico. So they need that facility. They need someone who can go back and forth. So, you know, thinking, well, you know, it's just Toronto or it's just Calgary or it's just Vancouver. It's really a, a short-sighted way of looking at things. Um, I know in my own case, um, especially when you're dealing in luxury retail, period, the vast majority of executives come from somewhere mm -hmm. else. <laughs> you know, that's the bottom line. I, 
what are you seeing in terms of, I don't know if you ever end up too much in the retail sector, but in general, a lot of employers are having trouble retaining people. Are you seeing that HR has a significant role in that? And what are they what are they doing to address that? Well, HR, of course, has a really important role in that. Around a lot of the cultural programming they can do, um, things around inclusivity, diversity, uh, flexibility. I mean, we're back to that that word again. You know, HR really can have a lot to do with listening to what it is that their people are asking for. So as opposed to having programming that is proscribed and prescribed, right. you, you try to be more responsive to to the needs of the of of the people that are working with you. I mean, th- there's nothing that says that everybody, this homogeneity that you talk about, mm-hmm. you know, that's really an old concept. Very Why much so. does it have to be that? Everybody has to do the same thing. It can go down, and and in some good employers, it is like that at the team level. Certain teams have a culture. Certain teams have a way that they need to work. So let them do it their way. Why does it all have to be the same? Well, it's it's a valid question, but, you know, I I spoke with one HR um, executive who said to me, my job is to protect the company. I'm not concerned. And I thought, well, you know, that's part of the problem is that a lot of the senior leadership in HR came up with that script, that their role is to defend the company from the employees. And in actual fact, if you break down those walls and you ask the employees to support the company, most of them will most of the time. But I think, too, in in terms of retention, flexibility in terms of hours, is is huge. It certainly is in retail because, you know, the first thing I get asked is, are there nights, are there weekends? And you have some old school retailers who still insist you have to work every weekend of your life. And they wonder why they're having trouble hiring, <laughs> you know. Um, some of these old ideas of command and control are what some HR leadership are having trouble letting go of. Uh, it's not really required anymore. You know, one of the things I see too in the people coming up, they're highly educated. Whether they're new Canadians or our Canadians, they're, they're highly educated. And they're used to working in teams. And there really has never been a capacity in um, human resources to have team accountability as opposed to personal accountability, to letting that power drift down to the floor level. As you say, do it their way and base it on team results. Uh, There are some very progressive uh, retailers who are now, you know, bending that way. But I think overall, HR needs to be more active in that. They could be not the scary people in the office, as opposed to, you know, a true support for staff. Do you agree? Well, and it's interesting that when HR takes the the viewpoint, as you just mentioned, like we're here to defend the company, um, you know, that doesn't set you up then for that collaborative kind of relationship. The other piece is, you know, you don't, if we're all in this together, 
And if we're all supposed to be working towards the same goal, then we're not going to set up a situation where we have to be, as you said, you know, they'll be there. Why do you have to defend? So the, th- the thing that's really, I think, important is for HR to understand that, you know, they have to be completely responsive to their employees. And, and when you talk about the hours, you know, people have different needs these days. So, you know, why can't you really ask people what works for you? And you might be surprised that what works for them actually works for you as well. If you, again, try to be flexible with how you think you get work done. Right. And I I think that as well, I mean, certainly, you know, from the retail perspective, be it at the store level, all the way up to the executive suite, the best retail executives themselves are so in tune and so on top of it. Um, They're real. You'll see them posting on LinkedIn daily and leading a people, a true people leadership program. But, you know, then it gets to HR and it falls into, well, did you apply in time? You know, like I think this rules-based administration of HR fails to address the realities of today, which, as you point out, is that people will not trade quality of life for an income anywhere. In fact, you know, I've I've seen people say, say to me, I'll take less money if I can have X, Y, Z. I think another key thing that, that gets in the way all the time is pay bands. You know, once HR has established a job description and a pay band, oh my gosh, you can't go three cents above. You can't have one more extra week of vacation or everybody will want it. But in truth, uh, especially, they don't do it here in Canada much, but they do in the USA, is unlimited vacations. Unlimited mm-hmm. paid vacations. Sounds crazy, doesn't it? But nobody takes them. Yeah. Yeah, I was just going to say, yeah. you, you can kind of put that forward, but people are actually pretty responsive. They are. And, and with the unlimited vacations, if people have five weeks, so many people don't even take that. Let right. them, so the idea of the unlimited vacation isn't so much that you'll always be on vacation, but it signals to the organization right. that you trust them, that, that we're going to make decisions together. Um, so it's not that anyone's really going to do the unlimited vacation, mm. but it just does send a well, message. You know, the value of travel uh, exceeds the value of owning things. So when we were coming up, I guess having your first car and material things, that's how you establish that you were successful. Um, but a lot of the generations, like in up to about 40, 45, so to speak, um, they don't think that at all. So touching on um, other areas that HR could begin to show flexibility about would happen to be uh, the values of the new employees, where millennials and down are many multiple different um, upbringings and expectations. And what they, what they don't value is material things. What they do value is experiences. So to have these um, great adventures, they demand time off. They demand freedom. Um, And they're not used to being restrained whatsoever. So how does HR navigate these new waters? Or are they? Or or in fact, they're they're stuck at that wall? Yeah, um, I think it's actually really tough. 
because the millennials and the younger generation are moving at light speed. Right. So if I look at when you talk generations, it used to be 20, 25 years. Um, but now I'm seeing the changes in the groups really shrink. So between a 30-year-old in the workplace and a 20-year-old is a really big difference. The 30-year-old's AI, for example, uh, that's going to have such a big uh, change. And the younger kids are going to be used to that. And somebody 10 to 15 years older, even at that level. So I think that HR often is a, a, a bit slow to respond to that. They're not integrated in the rest of the organization in the same way. Do you think that they're, you know, they're evaluating candidates, they're evaluating staff performance based upon um, standards that no longer exist that you, you simply can't find? I think it's really tough. I, I think that, you know, it takes so long to put together, let's say, a performance review system. I mean, how long does that thing take from beginning <laughs> to end and approvals? And do they work? Yeah, exactly. That's another question. And so you put that into place, then you have to train and half the people aren't trained properly. And then by the time all that launches, you've got this other group coming up where a lot of the measures you look at, like they're not even relevant. No anymore. You know, this this touches on retail, which is <clears throat> basically has a pandemic of turnover. Um, it's a horrific problem, but it's, it's somewhat self-inflicted. You know, this is what I find, that um, effectively the retail hasn't squeezed enough to make room for the new expectations. And one thing that, you know, North Americans find astounding is that the majority of people in the Netherlands only ever work part-time, whether it's mm. retail or whether it's any industry. So that uh, a husband and wife would both work part-time and raise children together. And they don't feel they're doing without. They feel they're having a quality life. You know, here, I, I, I noticed on the news in the September stats from Stats Canada, the newscasters are going, well, you know, we had 66,000 new jobs, but you know, 40,000 of them were part-time as with some kind of derogatory tone. Not understanding. I would probably say out of every two candidates I reach out to, they want part-time. Maximum 20, 24 hours. They want it. So in response to that, a lot of organizations are hiring two part-time instead of one full-time because you can't get a full-time person. <laughs> And you can't afford a full-time person anymore. And I don't think anymore that the old standard, well, if you're not full-time, you're just part-time, you're not committed. I think that's completely mm -hmm. untrue. So in terms of, you know, if you go the whole spectrum from executive recruiting of any industry, the middle managers down to, you know, the entry-level folks, I think the biggest shock for HR is how educated the entry-level people are. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it's astounding the levels of education. They, in most cases, they have more education, education than the bosses they're going to report to. It becomes a little bit difficult if you're using old command and control structures. Then you also have the learning component, right? Um, are most of your clients using online learning? You know, I think it's still a combination. I mean, through 
uh, COVID, a lot of learning stopped because people didn't do the online learning. Mm -hmm. So there was this hiatus of learning. Um, you know, I just put together a very big, as I mentioned, uh, learning program for a client, and they insisted. Uh, we put to, we designed 18 courses. Oh. They all have to be delivered in person. And we said to them, and this is a northern, it's up, you know, in the north. So oh. travel, getting places is really tough. No flex. Yeah. Everyone has to show up, put bums in seats. And we said, you know, we can easily, easily deliver this uh, virtually. And I think certainly um, younger generations expect it. Absolutely. They're used to it. They, they don't, they can't understand why, why they need to be physically present. But that's kind of left over from the early 50s industrial age where, you know, you have to be there to make widgets, right? So they count your productivity by widget production. And I think it, it disturbs um, some, some owners, some leaders, if they can't physically see you counting widgets, right? Yeah. But in these new age, I mean, retail anymore isn't about selling things. It's about creating relationships with the clients. And it really doesn't matter, you know, well, did you sell a widget type of thing? A lot, especially in luxury where, you know, a person puts a deposit mm -hmm. and you might not get that product for another year or two. <laughs> it could be a long time. So I, I feel sorry for HR in some ways that they're trapped within restraints. But do you think that they themselves recognize that they have to evolve or they just want to get to the finish line? No, I think, um, I, I think they, they know it. One of the issues for HR, depending on the company, is, you know, HR isn't really valued and often appreciated at the senior executive level. True, true. So, you know, one of the things that you hear a lot in HR, less so right now, but is they, we don't have a seat at the table. And so until senior leaders, until the executive suite really appreciates and values what HR can do, you're going to continue to have HR's voice not being powerful enough in the organization because they defer, for example, to finance, maybe sales, like revenue generation, mm -hmm. and then the financial numbers. Well, you know, there's an interesting component here in the people space um, about the cost of a vacancy. Uh, good old MIT Institute in Boston uh, did a study on this, actually some, some years ago, so it's hard to dig it up now. But what they found is that the cost of a vacant position is four times whatever that person would produce. So that's, it's easy to calculate in a retail sales role. So let's say you're paying that person 5000 a month times four. It's costing you $20,000 a month. Well, when you multiply that by hundreds of vacancies, which is often the case in, in the retail spectrum. Even going up the chain, you'll find missing buyers, you'll find missing uh, marketing people. There are so many vacancies because everybody's trying to find the fit, trying to find something identical to before. And when it comes to recruiting, and you and I both know this from doing agency work, is that Nobody wants to pay a recruiter. They, mm, they think it's so right. expensive, yet we can prove to them over and over mm. and over again, it's vastly cheaper to pay us and fill the role than it is to leave it vacant, hoping one day you'll run into the yeah. right person, you know. Um, that doesn't seem to happen. 
But anyway, if you were in a room full of HR executives right now, what are the one, two, three key messages you would want to give them? Well, here's one of the key messages, and it goes right back to what you were talking about, you know, the vacant role. Uh, One of the roles that I had when I was in magic, and I still do it, is every person that was placed in a, let's say, management role would get the first 100-day coaching onboarding for me. And why did we do that? The reason we did it is because the cost of bringing somebody in, training them, making sure they onboard, simply to have them maybe blow out your door in six to 12 months, and then the four months or six months of vacancy. So one of the things that I know um, companies in HR don't pay attention to is proper onboarding. So for them, onboarding is about here, we'll tell you where the bathroom is and here are the Mm -hmm. forms to fill out. I work with these people weekly for, you know, three months. And the first six to eight weeks of a new role is the critical point as to whether somebody is going to be committed or not. It's all front-end loaded. So if they have a bad onboarding experience, if they don't feel good, if they don't feel welcomed, if, if they don't feel that they can be successful in that short period of time, they might not leave for a year, but they have checked out early. And then they bide their time until it's the right time. What do, what do they call that? Some type of quitting, silent quitting? Silent quitting, quiet quitting. Quiet, quiet quitting. quitting. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, uh, us as, as, who've done so much recruiting, I mean, it's devastating to us when a candidate fails. They get hired and they fail. We yeah. are destroyed by yeah. it because we've put our name and reputation and our time and effort into saying this is probably the right person for you. And then when the company doesn't keep up their end, and that's the reason that they fail, um, then, you know, it's so difficult. You're mm-hmm. between a rock and a hard place. You, um, I get a lot of pushback when I try and suggest, well, maybe, you know, especially the employment contract. I looked at one the other day, which is nine pages long. Yeah, crazy. I'm thinking to myself, nine pages long, was this a CEO role? Right, <laughs> and even then. <laughs> and even then, you know, I mean, are you really going to see your employee? Probably not. It isn't uh, IT, you know. So I thought, why on earth would you set yourself up where this your new employee thinks that they can't put a foot wrong because they've signed this paper? <laughs> and, you know, the intimidation starts from day one. And I know I had suggested, I, I worked with another client where I said, okay, if you want to keep your big, long contract, here's an idea. First of all, just put it in point form. First, a first version, we're going to ask you to sign a document that says you'll show up Monday to Friday. You will be paid this much. We expect you to keep our information. You know, just lay it out in layman's um, language, then get them to sign the contract. Don't scare them half to death, you know, with this. I've never seen so much fear, this fear of the employees, you know. Because most of the time, you know, trying to sue your employer isn't effective, doesn't work. It hardly ever works. It has to be so egregious, right? So the fear of your employees coming coming at it from that perspective is, is not inclusive, right? Mm-hmm. We did a great podcast not too long ago, I don't know if you saw it, with uh, Mary, Mary Wildman on inclusivity and how Canada has not embraced mm-hmm. our Indigenous people mm. into industries. 
now you're telling me about this northern project mm. that, that you had going. Is that part of the purpose of that? Well, you know, I do a lot of work in the north up with uh, up in Nunavut, Northwest Territories. Um, so I've done a, a fair bit. And, you know, even up there with big indigenous populations, it's, it's really tough. For example, in Nunavut, 80% of, you know, the government is the key employer, but 80% of the employees are from the south. Right. You know, I actually don't know what the gap is. There is a lot of discussion about this, about in, inclusivity, the Indigenous, you know, recognition. And yet, when it comes down to it, it doesn't it's translate. Not, it's not, it, yeah, I've been working up in Nunavut a long time. I mean, they were formed as uh, their own territory in 1999 with an objective of having 80% Indigenous employment. And there is like, you know, all these years later, they're not even close. So, you know, I, I don't know what the issue is, but it's a big deal and it's really important. And I think that HR has to make it a priority. No. I mean... I have never had a search asking for an Indigenous, you know, it's inclusive, but nobody's put that as a number one. And, you know, maybe things will change, in particular in Manitoba, that now has its first Indigenous Premier. And he says he's going to put some women in the government, too. (laughs) Yay! (laughs) But I think, uh, you know, we're we're ignoring a huge percentage of the population by not including them. I, my sense may, mostly has been that they don't feel welcome. No, They don't right. feel comfortable in approaching, that they wouldn't be welcome. And, of course, who wants to keep applying where you always get a no? Mm-hmm. I know one gal who's applied every year to a company for 10 years, and she's increasingly, you know, advancing her skills. And not once in 10 years did anybody ever yeah. call. And, you know, she go, why, why, you know? It's, um, there's a lot, it's a big bucket to fill, you know, and maybe we're being a little bit hard on HR because it all falls in, the people piece always falls into their bucket and they have to sort it out and make sense of it. And a lot of them have just said, I'm done. (laughs) I'm I'm finished with it. So not to be, you know, we really want to support HR. We want to see them evolve and become partners in right from the recruiting all the way up to learning and development. So, Deb, I really want to thank you for spending this time and sharing your expertise. I know you're available for contracts. How does someone reach out to you? Oh, they can just, um, actually, best way is just to go to LinkedIn. Go to LinkedIn. Yeah, LinkedIn (laughs) is so easy. Just get me there. I'm always on LinkedIn. (laughs) Yes, you are. I love your comments. (laughs) I look forward to them. Well, thanks, everybody, for tuning in, and we'll see you on our next podcast coming up soon. Thank you for listening to the Retail Pulse podcast with your host, Suzanne Sears. If you enjoyed the episode today, please be sure to tell someone about it. Suzanne loves discussion and is open to guest speakers on the podcast with specific topics. If you have an idea for an episode, contact us at brcareers.com. We will be publishing monthly. Keep listening and give us your feedback.